Reading is from Psalm 147. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the humble. He casts the wicked to the ground. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make melody to our God on the lyre. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He makes grass grow on the hills. He gives to the beasts their food and to the young ravens that cry. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor his pleasure in the legs of a man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in, this, in his steadfast love. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion. For he strengthens the bars of your gates. He blesses your children within you. He makes peace in your borders. He fills you with the finest of the wheat. He sends out his command to the earth. His word runs swiftly. He gives snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He hurls down his crystals of ice like crumbs. Who can stand before his cold? He sends out his word and melts them. He makes his wind blow and the waters flow. He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask that you would let us praise you now, and let every heart in this room be able to praise you despite whatever circumstances we may be in. Lord, you call us to praise you, you invite us to praise you, and I ask that all of the goodness and the glory and the pleasantness and the fittingness that uh, is manifested in this psalm around the idea of praising you. Let that come and land upon us even as we consider your word. Let some of your understanding overflow into our minds. Let your love seep into our hearts as we think about your words. Let the humble be lifted. Let healing come to those of us who are brokenhearted. Let your Watch care be over each of us in whatever situations we find ourselves. And so, Lord, our, our eyes are upon you. Our hope is in you. And we confess that without you, we can do absolutely nothing. And so I ask for your help, too. In Christ Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, this morning we are, you've heard Psalm 147 is the psalm that we're dealing with. This will be the last one in this series that we have been in throughout the whole summer. Uh, we've been through about 13 different psalms. Uh, we've 
uh, throughout the whole course of the summer, and this will be the last one. And it is um, a, a, a psalm of praise. Uh, we start with praise, it ends with praise, and, and why? Um, I will just say quickly two things. The Lord, uh, we're going to praise the Lord for all that he does, what the psalmist would show us, and then all in which he delights. So God does some things and he also delights in things. And for those reasons, we should praise him. And we'll, we'll take a look at them together. Um, so the first word in this psalm is hallelujah. It's a Hebrew compound word of hallel to praise. And yah is a abbreviated uh, notion of Yahweh. So the point of the psalm, if that's the first word and that is the last word of this psalm. Hallelujah. And I can hear David Gonzalez saying that word. If you were here, the very first service, uh, David introduced the Psalms, did a kind of a high-level introduction to all the Psalms. And I, I think he had the congregation shout hallelujah at the very beginning. Just, just shout it out. I think he said, we, we're not accustomed to speaking out praises to the Lord, but that's the purpose of the Psalm. It is both an invitation to and an expression of praise to the Lord. So that's what we're being invited to, is to praise the Lord. And I just, I was stunned at that fact. Because here we are in the heart of the Bible, the center of the Bible is an entire book dedicated to singing praises to the Lord. The entire book, right in the dead center of Scripture, is, is instructions and, and psalms that are intended to be sung. How important is it then that an entire book is dedicated to the singing of psalms and praises and hymns to the Lord? Singing is massively important, I conclude. Because we're not only commanded, four times in this psalm, we're commanded to either praise the Lord or sing praises to him. And yet it opens with a, a teaching that that command is good. And so this entire book is intended to help us sing to the Lord through every circumstance. As we have been through all of these psalms, one of the things that amazes me is that the psalms are written in every season of life. If, if you're the king seated on the throne and there is a praise of victory, there's a psalm to sing. And if you are on the run for your life, hiding in a cave, there is a psalm to be sung of praise to the Lord. The psalms include it all. I, I, my daily Bible reading, I read a psalm a day. I nonstop. One psalm a day. If I get through to 150, I start again at one. So twice a year, I just read through the psalms. I love the psalms. And it, it strikes me as incredibly important to God that you sing to him. And I think the point of the psalmist is you're not just singing here when you're gathered with God's people, right? What, what, was David in a cave singing with the church? No, he, he was singing to the Lord always. He's his lyre, he's got his harp with him always. And there is a song with us, with the people of God. It ought to be always. And so I think this, this begins with a command to sing. I think part of the point, one of the points of this song, psalm, is to help you sing. And so I just wonder how many of you make it a habit to sing throughout the course of the week? Do you have songs with you that you can readily sing to the Lord? And I know one of the arguments against that will be, I just don't like to sing. I'm not a good singer. 
um, or it, this, that doesn't do anything for me, or I feel emotionally disconnected from the Lord and alienated and cut off from the Lord. And as I sat with that, I, that's real, that's true, right? We all feel that way. Who wants to sing when you're in a cave? And yet the psalmists teach us to do so. I think one of the things that I have become convinced of as we have moved through the psalms is the psalms and singing praises to the Lord is one of the means by which the emotional disposition of your heart is changed. The affections of your heart is moved towards the Lord when you are singing praises to the Lord. And so your entire emotional connection is part of the means why this is commanded is because they're what? They're good. This is good to sing praises to the Lord is what we start with. It is pleasant to sing praises to the Lord. Now some of us have more pleasant voices than others. But nonetheless, if you are singing to the Lord, does he care? If, if you are ascribing glory to the Lord, there is a a. a purpose behind the command, and that is to change your heart. And I came across a quote from Jonathan Edwards, which, which confirms my thesis. I'm going to read this to you. Jonathan Edwards, one of the greatest theologians the United States has ever produced, said this in about 1754 in a book called The Religious Affections. He said, the duty of singing praises to God seems to be appointed wholly to excite and express religious affections. By that he means affections for God. Emotional affections towards God is what he's talking about. He says, no other reason can be assigned why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than prose and do it with music, but only that such is our nature and frame, that these have a tendency to move our affections. What is it about singing to the Lord that alters your emotional disposition? Except that, what Edwards is saying, we were created to sing praises to the Lord. It is good, it is pleasant to sing praises to the Lord. So, when you don't feel like singing, sing. When you can't imagine standing before the Lord and praising him for all of his goodness because things didn't turn out exactly like you wanted to turn out, praise him. That is good, is what I think he is saying. And so all of these things are part of the corporate life of the people of God. Have always been, always will be. If you read to the end of the book in Revelation, what does Revelation tell us is happening right now in heaven? Is, quiet, is it quiet time in heaven? Motivational devotion, get alone with the Lord. No, there's songs that are being erupted and singing throughout all of heaven. And, and, and churches around the globe, when people of God gather together, there are songs of praise that are lifted up. And if you're in countries where that will get you killed, there are mouthed words of songs of praise. I have heard stories of people in nations who it's, it, is, it will get you killed to sing. And so what do we do? You sing it out with no words. You're still singing to the Lord. And so here, an expression of the heart. This is something I think we have to get our heads around because it is good and it is pleasant and it is fitting. Verse 1, to sing praises to the Lord. So praise the Lord. Hallelujah is what that word is. For it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. 
And aren't those emotions all wrapped up? When you do something good, isn't there a sense of pleasure? What did you do good this week? Something you did and you thought, that was good. Something at work or at home or somebody in our house made a carrot cake this week. Man, it was good. And there was a sense of pleasure that came with it, especially the icing. And there was a ton of it left over and Todd loves icing. I care nothing about the cake. I just want the icing. Spoonful of that leftover and I'm content. And yet, there's a sense of pleasure that comes from goodness. So if God's commands are true and this is right and the command to praise is a command to enjoy the Lord, can you not sing praises to our God? That's what we are saying here. It is good, it is right, and it is fitting Right? Praises are befitting our God. It is right to praise those who are praiseworthy. For we're commanded to do this. Paul writes in Romans 13, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Right? We ought to honor those who are worthy of being honored. Peter agrees, he says in 1 Peter 2, Fear God and honor the emperor. It is fitting to give commendation to those who are worthy of it when it's appropriate. And it just struck me, an example of that we have seen this week all over the globe in paying honor and tribute to Her Majesty who passed away, right? Everywhere we have been seeing honor and praise given to a woman who ruled for 70 years with dignity and grace through crisis and confusion and cultural change and so much uh, disturbance and yet she led with dignity. I, I discovered just a few years ago that she does an annual or did an annual Christmas message and I thought well, that's really interesting so I started watching them. Absolutely wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. Just short seven, eight minutes, sometimes nine. Always positive, always full of hope and she always talked about Jesus. She was not afraid of her faith in Christ. And so it is good and right to honor those who are worthy of being honored. Was she perfect? Absolutely not. She's not a perfect leader on the planet. And yet a great lady has fallen and is worthy of our honor. And so if it is fitting to praise a flawed human leader, how much more fitting is it to praise a flawless divine Lord? It is right and good for us to praise the Lord and to speak of him. If it is right to praise those who are in office over us and give deference and honor to those who are in authority over us, how much more is it worthy of praising him who is most honorable and highest above us? If it's right to praise an excellent carrot cake, then how much more is it right to praise the excellencies of God who we get invited to taste and see that the Lord is good? So we sing his praises. It is good and right to praise him. That's the beginning of this psalm. And so then we see something incredible. As you move into the, 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 the meat of the psalm from verses 2 on, what is praised is the doing of God. So why should you praise him? 
the psalmists always give us reasons to, and this psalm is incredible. There are 24 explicit verbs used in this psalm. They all refer to God. Three instances, the verbs are inferred, and yet all of them point you directly to the Lord. So why should you praise the Yahweh, the, the Lord God about whom we're speaking? Verse 2, Yahweh builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts. Verse 3, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. He determines, in verse 4, the number of the stars. He gives to them names. 6, he lifts up the humble. He casts down the haughty, the wicked. 8, he covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain. He makes grass to glow, grow. Verse 9, he gives food to wild beasts. 10, he delights he delights in things. Verse 13, he strengthens the city gates. He blesses children. God the Father blesses children. Now you know why Jesus did. Right? People are bringing little kids to Jesus all the time. God, God the Father blesses children. He makes peace in Jerusalem. Verse 14, and he fills the city with fine wheat. 15, he sends out his word. His commands run. 16, he gives snow and scatters frost. 17, he hurls down the ice crystals. 18, he sends a command to melt them. And he makes winds to blow. And 19, he declares his word to Israel. Does that sound like the old man upstairs hanging out, creaking away in the rocking chair, waiting for his time to pass away? Is God the old man upstairs, completely detached, unengaged with this world? Is that the God who is portrayed in this psalm? God is a, a mighty actor here. He is doing, doing, doing. He is busy. Yes, he has done things in the past and he's still active in the present. He numbered the stars in the past. He's named them in the present. He, he is exalted and lifted up and yet he humbles proud people here in the present. He created planets and now he commands the seasons on a regular basis. He made winds to blow and waters to flow in the past and now he commands the frost and the snow to fall. He pitches out ice crystals like we pitch out breadcrumbs to feed the ducks. Not the Canadian geese, just the ducks. And yet he formed wild beasts, even young ravens. Why is that in the Bible? Who cares about ravens? Nobody cares about ravens. And yet God feeds the ravens. Look at what is being pointed to here. God is active in this world in the smallest of details that appear to be completely unconcerning. So we praise the Lord for his activity. May he give us eyes to see this week where he's active. Feeding ravens, uh, causing grass to grow, helping you get to work causing the sun to come up, helping you get through whatever it is you're getting through. We have a God who is active in our world, and so we praise him for all that he does. And then the psalmist moves on to praising him for that in which the Lord delights. And so now in the heart of this psalm, verses 10 and 11, we see the heart of God opened up. Let's look at these two verses, 10 and 11. His delight is not in the strength of the horse, nor in the pleasure of the, or his pleasure in the legs of man. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those whose hope is in his steadfast love. 
So now the psalmist pulls back. He gives us a negative definition first of what God does not delight in. And then he opens up a positive definition for what he does delight in. And what he delights in ought to bless your socks off. Because first of all, he does not delight in the strength of the horse, nor take pleasure in the legs of man. What is the point? We exalt strength, don't we? We cherish power and might. If you want to be well thought of and respected, get some muscles or some fast legs. Right? We see this all over the NFL, right? The fastest guys who can do the 40 mile or the 40 yard dash, 40 mile dash. Let's see that one. Yeah, that'll increase some pay in the NFL. Um, 40 yard dash, right? The fastest guys get the most pay. The NFL combine is intense and it's a 40 yard dash. Powerful legs, right? The psalmist is here pointing to that which is the strongest muscle group. That it, that's where we get our value, our effort. Our ability, self-reliance, right? We are strong and mighty. God doesn't delight in those things. Or the horse, is this the war horse? Probably, right? The psalmist says in verse, uh, Psalm 33, a war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its might, it cannot rescue. God does not delight in physical strength. He gives it, yes, but in and of itself, he doesn't rejoice and see value in someone. I mean, if you put a bodybuilder up and somebody else who is not a bodybuilder, and who are we going to praise more in our culture, right? And so God is not concerned about those kind of things. He is concerned about what? Weak. The neglected. What do we see in this psalm? The Lord builds up Jerusalem. How does he do it? By gathering the outcasts in verse 2. He gathers outcasts. Where do you find outcasts? Not in the city center. When you gather outcasts, you go out to get them. They're on the edges. They're on the fringes. They're on the margins. And God goes and he gathers those who are cast out. Those who have been rejected in the center of the city and cast out. That's the ones who the Lord goes out and gets in verse 2. Or in verse 3, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. This is the attention that the God of this universe gives brokenhearted, wounded people. God is, is pictured here like a medic. He, he's out looking for the wounded, those who can't help themselves. It, it's not a verse in the Bible that God helps only those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. I, I, forget, I read a, a, a survey here a couple years ago where it was asked the question, is this a Bible verse or not? And, and it was like 75% of people who identified as a Christian thought that was in the Bible. That's not in the Bible. That came from pop psychology in the 60s. Anyway, here we have a God who is offering to bind up brokenhearted people and, and heal their wounds. Binding up means give attention to. It means bandaging, wrapping up, attending. Like the uh, person, who, who, this good Samaritan who poured on oil and wine and bound up the wounds of the man who was broken. This is our God. So Psalm 34, 18 says this. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And saves the crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. And he saves the crushed in spirit. God acknowledges and attends to unseen wounds. He focuses his divine attention. This is the God who created and hung the stars and planets. 
He pays attention to your spiritual wounds, the unseen, inner, brokenheartedness he gives his attention to. How many of you are not blown away by that? The fact that God knows what's going on in your heart and he's attending to it. And we're probably, all of us have brokenhearted aspects one way or another. We're all probably wounded one way or another. We like to think we're not. We present as though we're not. We are. We're all wounded. Somewhere along the way, somebody has wounded us. And yet the Lord, what are we told? Lifts up the humble in verse 6. He lifts up the humble. And here's the word of the Lord from Isaiah 57. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. This is what he says. He's described him just now. And now here's what he says. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I who dwell in the highest heights of heaven and who inhabit the perfect holiness, I will draw near to you if you humble yourself before me and, and have a contrite spirit. What is a contrite spirit? A contrite spirit is someone who says, man, I am so sorry for my sin. I I am so broken about my inner disposition that is cracked and broken. Lord, will you help me? I, yes, I, I know I should be different. I want to. I yearn to be different. And yet, there's something within me that is still cracked. Will you heal my broken heart? And what does the God of the universe say? Yes! You, you get low on your face before me. I'm with you. I will draw, I dwell in the highest heavens, in the holiest places, and yet you will find me with the brokenhearted sinners. I will be near, and I will bind up wounds. That blows my mind. What other God in the universe says that? What other religion has a God who says that? I can't think of any. It's incredible to me. And so the Lord, he doesn't take pleasure in strength. He does not take pleasure in human effort. He does not take pleasure in your self-confidence. And he will break you of it. If you, if you delight in self-sufficiency, he will break you of it. If you get haughty and conceited, if you're his child, he will train you. And this is what the Apostle Paul said, right? I, I had this incredible vision is what Paul says. God, let me see into heaven. And have you ever prayed that? Like, I was, just yesterday, I was praying, Lord, if we could just, like, go for a walk. I mean, can we just go for a little walk together and have a conversation? I wish I could just be near you. And, and God granted Paul that ability to, to see into the heavens. And he said it was so incredible in order to keep me from being conceited, right, which is what happens. God shows us something amazing, and we think, well, I must be pretty amazing because God showed that to me. And, and here's what the Lord says. Um, you, Paul says, I have been given a thorn in the flesh to keep me humble. And I ask for it to be removed. I promise I won't get arrogant, Lord. I promise I won't. And, and Jesus said to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. My strength, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect 
in weakness. If you want to be someone great for the Lord God Almighty, you need to be comfortable with weakness. In your life will come some weakness, whether it be physical, spiritual, whatever it will be, to keep you from trusting in yourself there will be a sanctifying work of the grace of God to remind you just how little you are so that you will find your strength in Christ because he will supply you the strength that you need. He does. He is faithful. It's exactly what he does. He does not take pleasure in self-sufficient physical strength, do-it-yourself, all self-sufficiency. What he, what he takes grace in and, and delight in are those who, what, fear him and hope in his steadfast love, verse 11. God takes pleasure in those who delight in him by, by trusting him and hoping in his steadfast love and fearing him. So think for a moment, the God of this universe experiences pleasure. He likes things. He delights in things. There is aspects of pleasure that God experiences. That's why we experience pleasure. God, we're created in his image. He delights in things, so he's created that we too will delight in some things. And so he experiences pleasure in people fearing him and also hoping in him. So let me just ask you a question. If you were on the elevator and somebody said, what the heck is the fear of the Lord? What would you say? That's tough. It's a massive topic. We could preach a whole sermon on it. We won't. Three things I think I would like to share with you. What is the fear of the Lord? I, I asked this question in my prayers and, and David's words came to mind uh, to me because there are in, in Psalm 34, David says this, Come, O children, listen to me and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Okay, David's going to teach us about the fear of the Lord. And then, and then uh, he says in verse 13 and 14, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. So what is the fear of the Lord? It is avoiding evil. The fear of the Lord gets manifested in controlling your tongue and controlling your body and staying away from evil, turning away from evil. When you see evil coming, you, I'm going this way. You eschew evil. That's what eschew means, to turn away from. That's what Job did. Job was a righteous man. Why? Because he knew what was coming and he went the other way. And how many of us, we see evil coming with like, you know what? I think I'm going to hang out for a minute. And we get wasted. We, we never endure. And so a wise person, with fear of the Lord, will be like, I'm staying as far away from the edge as I possibly can. I'm not going to get as close as I can to see how close I can get. That's usually the way we think. And so here, fear of the Lord is forsaking and turning away from evil. Another aspect of the fear of the Lord is standing in awe of God. Psalm 33, 8 and 9 says this, Let all of the earth fear the Lord. Let all of the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Why? In what way should we stand in awe of him? For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So consider what he's saying. God spoke this world into existence. And so standing in awe of him is, is an, an amazement at the power of God. And, and that might be hard for you to get your head around. But for me, I, the, the best person I can think of to illustrate this to me in my life was my dad. My father, he was a mostly good, good father. 
He was a quite, quite broken father, and yet there were aspects of him that God used to teach me. He was the most physically, the strongest person I've ever met in my life. And he had hands that were like vice grips. And so if he got a hold of you, you were not going to get away. I, I tried many times, futilely. And, and he yet, I, I, I feared him. I, he could crush my skull in a moment. And he had these fingernails that could. And yet I stood in awe of the physical power of him. But I loved him, and I knew I was safe with him. It's like that with God. He, he possesses all power. This psalm says his understanding is beyond measure. His goodness is beyond measure. So standing in awe of his creative power, yet resting in that power for our protection is what the fear of the Lord means. It is to reverence him and hold him in the highest respect, and yet rest in his love. Another aspect, the third aspect of the fear of the Lord is keeping his word. It means honoring him by his word. Isaiah 66, 2 says this. This is the one, whom, uh, uh, to, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Right? When this, this means this is a person who comes to the God's word and says, God gets to tell me what to do. I don't get to tell God what to do. I am going to, I need to understand God's word and then stand under it, meaning it's authority over me. I, I'm humbly coming to the word of God and trembling as I come because of God's power and his glory. So that means there is a highest respect for the Lord. That those three things at least give us a little bit of, of flesh on the fear of the Lord. And so God delights in people who fear him. It pleases him when we hold him in highest respect. It pleases him when we take delight and security in his power. It pleases him when we turn away from evil and just run the other way. That pleases the Lord. And also, the last aspect, he takes pleasure in or delights in those who hope in his steadfast love. And what does that mean? Psalm 33 helps us here. David, I think, also gives us a little more flesh on what does it mean to hope in the steadfast love of the Lord. Let me read 33, 18 to 22. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. That's the watchful providential eye on the Lord, of the Lord on you, on those who hope in his steadfast love. Do you see the parallelism there? It's the same as in Psalm 147. Those who fear the Lord is parallel to those who hope in his steadfast love. Those are not contradictory notions. They're compatible. So fearing the Lord, reverencing him, is also entailing hope in him. Hoping in the Lord. What kind of hope in his steadfast love? Verse 19 in, in Psalm 33. That he may deliver his soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help, our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. So hoping in the Lord means you are confident that he will save your soul. Your salvation is in him and hoping in his name. What's his name? Yahweh, who sent his son called Yeshua or Jesus, as we put it into English. Jesus means Yahweh saves. 
So God delights in those who hope in him through Jesus and through hoping in his name that he will be the salvation of our soul. Why? Because we cannot save ourselves. There is no salvation apart from faith in God through Jesus. None is what the Bible tells us. Peter said this, there's no salvation in no other name, so there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so hoping in God, reverencing him appropriately, is putting your confidence that he will give you the righteousness we need rather than thinking you, by the power of the horse and the strength of your legs, will earn it. You rest that he gives by faith to those who look to him, not those who work really hard and say at the last day, I, I, I did it. That won't happen. In heaven, there were nobody who said, I, I did it. There will be lots of, he did it. Jesus did it. My faith and confidence is completely in him. So praise him. That's the point of the psalm. Hallelujah is the ending, the last word here. Praise the Lord. Why? Because it is good. It is right and it is fitting to praise the Lord. It is pleasant to praise him. So what can you do with this psalm? This week, you can take it with you as you go to school and work and say, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a song in my head that I'm going to sing, a psalm of praise. A song to, to extol the goodness of God. Have a song ready to sing this week. Go find one that you can, you know the words and you can take it with you as an expression of praise. Because we're commanded, praise the Lord. Secondly, this week, ask the Lord to give you eyes to see where God is at work when you think he's not. Like growing grass. Who, who looks at the grass and think, God is at work. Well, you should, <laughs> because that's what this tells us. So my point is, as you go to work, you go back to school, before you start your day, as you're on your way, simply ask yourself, ask the Lord, give me eyes to see where you're at work today. Give me eyes to see what you're doing, what I can't see today. And then lastly, can you praise the Lord that he delights in those who are weak enough to simply trust in him? Can you praise God that he is not the kind of God who says, you know, if only you were a little stronger, if only you were a little more diligent, if only you were a little more holy, I would like to hang out with you. But you're just, you're just not quite there yet. What this verse, this psalm says is, God delights in those who say on their face, Lord, I am a mess I need your forgiveness. I need your, your cleansing. I need your transformation. I need your help. Help me, help me, help me. God delights in being the giver, being completely the, the source of our strength. And he delights when we are so weak, all we can do is be like a little baby saying, help me, help me, help me, pick me up, carry me. Give me strength. So this week... May those notions go with you to work, or at home, cry out constantly for help, ask for eyes to see where God is at work, which we don't normally see, and praise him in song. And that's what we're going to do as we end. 
Because this verse said, those who hope in his steadfast love. The steadfast love of the Lord is his covenant commitment to stay true to his promises and those who hope in his promises. God says, I will love you. My love will abide for you. If you come to me through Jesus, then my love will abide in your life. And we hope in that. We hope in his ability to keep us in his love, not in our ability to be strong enough to hold on to him. We are resting in him. That's the kind of hope that he delights in. So we're going to sing about that in just a moment. But let me pray for us. And I want you to, I want you to ask yourself, how can I put this psalm into practice at work? And I just want to, to give you a moment to sort of pray that, and then I will pray, and then we will sing. Lord Jesus, would you give us the ability to praise you through all of the circumstances that we find ourselves in? Lord, some of us are in the middle of difficulties right now, and it's been a tough year. Would you give us the ability to praise you? And some of us are on the other side. We're on top of the world, and things couldn't be better. Give us the ability to praise you for your gracious gifts to us. But Lord, we, we would ask, let us see you at work. You're building, you're making, you're healing, you're binding up wounds, you're understanding, you're, you're doing things we cannot even begin to comprehend. Give us eyes to see what you're doing. And for those of us who just can't see you, would you open up the eyes of our hearts and grant faith. Let today, even this moment right now, be a moment when we cry out in faith and say, oh Lord God, would you be for me all that this psalm says you are and all that the Lord Jesus illustrated you to be. Would you be my salvation? Would you let me experience your love? And God, if there are those who are hopeless, let this moment be a moment which the anchor of our soul is dropped into the hope that you are real, you are alive, and you care for, the, for us who are your creatures. And Lord, I pray that you would, you would fill our hearts with that kind of hope so that we can share that hope with those around us, whether they be classmates or um, colleagues at work or at school. God, we ask you for help. And I pray that you would do all of this as we rejoice in your steadfast love. So give us voice to sing. In Christ Jesus' name I pray, amen.